you know, the problem that I see for India and specifically the Indian Armed Forces uh, to be able to get on to the AI bandwagon is that, uh, as Mr. Rajiv Malhotra has correctly pointed out, that uh, uh, you've got to have a scientific temperament within society. And uh, as he says that he doesn't get to see that as an organized whole of nation effort currently being put in, unlike what is there in China and possibly because of the United States and a few other countries uh, being the leaders in technology, they, they, they already have a head start. Uh, we are nowhere there. So if you do not have within your society uh, what would be called a concentrated effort to be able to harness the potential that everybody says that artificial intelligence is going to give you, whether it is for your peacetime use and definitely for military applications as well. Uh, so if it is not there in the environment to the level that we need it, how is it that you're going to be able to narrowly focus it for military purposes? Uh, I mean, that's a challenge which I see. Yes. Uh, so uh, that's why I did write about the fact that you actually need somebody uh, who is able to, uh, to put it, uh, should I say bluntly, uh, knock heads together, has a fair grasp of bureaucracy and has a fairly good grasp of what is the direction in which the country needs to head as far as artificial intelligence is concerned. Uh, because it's a race and it's not purely a military race. Uh, it's more or less a civilizational race, as I understood what Mr. Malhotra was trying to say. Yes. Uh, so if that be the case, then in the military, uh, uh, like you have uh, rightly said, that within the army, it is the R-Track which is the leader. Uh, but I think at the level of the nation, uh, you need to get your scientific community in, you need to get your research and development that is under the Ministry of Defense on board. Uh, you need to have your own qualitative requirements, if I may call it that, whether it be for drones, whether it be for robotics, whether it be for the use of artificial intelligence to be able to analyze big data. Who's collecting big data on behalf of the Indian military? Who's collecting and analyzing it or at least storing it uh, in a manner that it can be easily used. Uh, did we, over the last eight months, have our ability to be able to gather some data from a standoff in eastern Ladakh uh, against the Chinese, against the PLA? Uh, did we uh, you know, have some kind of software that is available for a very basic rudimentary analysis of how do they do their drills? I mean, I'm going down into the weeds, but the reason why I'm saying all this is that if you don't have somebody at the very top who is laying the broad basic guidelines, putting everybody together onto the platform, and only then can the military take full advantage of where artificial intelligence, where machine learning, where big data analytics, where the power of the computers and everything else that's connected with it is going to be able to get you to where you think you're going to be. Chinese have got a leap, they've got a head start over us. Uh, even in the United States, uh, they have set up a joint uh, agency for artificial intelligence uh, within the Department of Defense only about four years ago. And they understand that they need to get much ahead of where the Chinese are going to be by 2025. So I feel that uh, we firstly need to understand where we lack uh, in our ability to put it all together. And I think some of these issues were very well highlighted by Mr. Rajiv Malhotra. And if we are able to do it, only then will we be able to do uh, the technical stuff, which is what you had mentioned about what are the problems that I see. I had focused very narrowly on unmanned ground vehicles, which is probably the most complex 
uh, of the uh, deployment of uh, you know uh, autonomous weapon systems or semi-autonomous weapon systems which have to operate in a complex environment it's not as easy as you know driverless cars or some of the other stuff that tesla and google and everybody else is trying out uh, it's, a, it's a tough challenge so in uh, lethal autonomous weapon systems or autonomous weapon systems with human intervention in them where do we stand with that uh, so my paper was more narrowly focused on that uh, but uh, i still think that as far as understanding artificial intelligence within the nation uh, getting everybody together and then being able to specifically draw out those issues uh, which we think will be beneficial for the military whether it is in better decision making whether it is in analyzing data and being able to sift uh, through the raw uh, you know information that we're getting and be able to make some sense and some good intelligence out of it i think those are the things that we will have to focus on and uh, the army design bureau uh, our track uh, some of the other institutions that we have even within the uh, uh, should i say the narrow technical focus that is there uh, in our training institutions those are some of the things that we could actually look at uh, that's what i thought i would be able to put across to you thank you sir i just you know want to uh, just add something to this you know the point is this that the lag is a fact now the lag is a fact for whatever reason and my experience has been in this domain or and associated domains of disruptive technology last 2 3 4 years is this that the grand push notwithstanding i mean howsoever inadequate but the niti aayog has laid out a report the mod is doing something edited by the defense secretary i said the cds the chiefs are at it every day but when you start the, the point is that start however grand the vision the start has to be small and we've seen it in building systems up today if you ask me for the modest research that we are doing funds is not an issue but our levels are uh, i mean uh, i would say so relatively low that when you start despite the grand push it will take time for these things to unfold and very surprisingly i'll return to this point a little later if you read the report of the american national security commission on ai i'm not talking of the larger uh, american province in ai it's obviously much ahead but the report in its references to the us military you will find that their i mean it's not a point to gloat over but their status is not very much unlike ours all the problems that they have identified in the report you will relate to us and i'll come to that next uh, a little later so that's the whole point i was trying to make we'll return to that if we have time now let's get in some questions from the arcade establishment a brigadier ranjan kero from the amitko central school has a question for mr malotra on the impending contest between the supreme algorithm and the and human 2.0 yeah brigadier kero sir with your novel research that you have uh, done to give scrutiny to the crystal ball and to try to foresee what uh, is the future holds for us In chapter five of your book, sir, it is the battle for self. The yes. concept of the old human versus the human two point two, as you call it, is most interesting, sir. Yes. And you feel that the human two point two or superhumans, you call it in your book, sir, or any small minority will reap benefits of AI beyond the wildest imagination. the human 1.0 the very large majority of the as you term them the marginalized zombie population 
will be nominally tolerated by these uh, by this privileged class and maybe later on humanly humanely depopulated as time goes by so your views on what happens next now will the supreme algorithm now take charge on its own and feel that it has become human people and that even the superhuman things are no longer needed and are just useless burdens on it
Then second is the scalability, wherein uh, we are uh, able to increase or decrease the number of players. And then the intelligent adversary player who can challenge our own actions. However, due to organizational constraints, meeting all these requirements sometimes becomes challenging. Keeping in view of the above, is it possible to model the behavior of trained combatants into computer entities that can be ingested into the synthetic environment? If yes, will it be able to provide reasoning to support the outcome? And what kind of data management would be required to model such a behavior, sir? Very, very brilliant question. You know, something similar is happening when they are modeling uh, combatant is a virus. So virus is learning uh, from the human being by, because there are billions of copies of this virus all over. And this each one, like a, like all the driverless cars are connected through the cloud. So the experiences of one driverless car is being uh, benefiting the other driverless car also. So these wire, these, uh, uh, if you think of the, uh, uh, the viruses as a swarm, as a collective intelligence, if you will, uh, each of them trying a different experiment, one guy trying it on this patient, one guy trying it on that patient, and the human beings are of different levels of uh, immunity and different races, different genders, age. So the collective experience that this virus is having through all these experiments, it is doing from its point of view, the human being is big data. Uh, the human being is like, uh, for the virus, it is like this big data, it's trying all its experiments. So it's learning. So now the pharmaceutical industry is doing the opposite, thinking of this guy as a combatant. How do we learn from him? How do we try things on this virus and see what works and how it reacts? This is a very simple, this is a very similar thing to the war games where you have adversaries, each learning from the other. The, uh, the adversary that you are, you mentioned is one of the three components is not static. He's also learning. So as your, your model is modeling him, the thing you have to understand is, you have to have a proper machine learning system uh, representing that guy. And this machine learning system is learning from your actions. So it has to be a, a kind of both are learning from each other. This is the future of uh, uh, training, the future of simulation uh, in any adversarial roles, uh, whether it is uh, uh, biology uh, looking for drugs, whether it is somebody in the in uh, looking for, uh, you know, simulating and enhancing our warfare capability. And this type of modeling is coming. This uh, this type of modeling that you are talking about is extremely realistic and very important. All right. Let me now uh, steer the uh, conversation to a subject, which is our direct business and the reason why we exist: national security and defense. AI in national security and defense. Real hardball. Now here it's abundantly clear. Now at least that AI systems will be used in the pursuit of power and for the realization of strategic ambitions. It will also not be wrong to conclude that AI tools, in fact, will be the weapons of first resort in future conflicts. So we will need AI competencies to defend India, to deter our adversaries. We will need to leverage AI-based intelligence to gauge precisely both adversary capacity and intent. Note the subtle change. We once said that we can only gauge capacity. But now with AI, it's also possible to gauge capacity and intent as also to fight and win our wars. As the US National Security Commission on AI tells us, and I alluded to this a little earlier, artificial intelligence is poised to transform all aspects of military defense. AI applications will help militaries prepare, sense, and understand 
faster, decide faster, execute faster, and more efficiently. Numerous weapon systems will leverage one or more AI technologies. AI systems will generate better options for commanders. They'll create better networks. They will transform logistics, procurement, and the design and development of our new hardware. There's no time to elaborate, but the larger audience must read this report. It tells you the specific challenges in each of, this, uh, each of these domains. Our LTIPP will have to move from a platform-centric approach to a technology acquisition approach. It needs a huge change. And the fact that the USA is grappling with these challenges uh, can be some consolation. Uh, not, I mean, as I said, nothing to gloat over, but some consolation. Adopting AI will demand also the development and design of new tactics and operational concepts. So AI will pitch algorithm against algorithm, and the source of battlefield advantage may shift, or will shift, in fact, from traditional factors like force size, lethality, platform capacities, to facets like superior data collection, assimilation, connectivity, computing power, algorithms, and system security. No military segment or sphere will escape the transformative impact of artificial intelligence. Now, this brings me to my question, which is actually, uh, which really uh, is, I think, the central challenge. How in the Indian context could we best adopt AI? Now, to use an analogy from basketball, how can we be quick without hurrying? And this is really the challenge because we have to catch up with China, leapfrog ahead if possible. But like all other applications of AI, military and intelligence functions in AI and other such areas require some deliberation and time before they are developed, technologies discovered, fielded and rolled out. Some current AI systems are narrow and brittle. They require rigorous testing, safeguards, and an understanding of how they might operate differently in the real world than in a test bed. These are real problems which with, with which we grapple on a day-to-day -day basis. And uh, despite all our efforts, we still operate at human and not machine speed. So how do we change gear? Uh, AI will also re require profound adjustments in national security business practices, organizational cultures, and mindset, which is which is a huge challenge. So any ideas, thoughts, Mr. Malhotra, how we could bring about the necessary change, give the desired impetus to the development of an AI culture, work ethic, and the embrace of AI-friendly operation philosophies in the military? In the, the larger push, all those points that you make is well understood. But is there a more focused approach for the Indian military that you'd like to suggest? Yeah, I think I'm not aware of the internal uh, mechanisms, but I would like that there should be an AI commission or something which is very specifically AI, similar to the Space Commission, similar to the Atomic Energy Commission, because uh, the, the, the push from Niti Aayog, they're sort of part-time into AI, but they're not really experts, they're economists and other things, which is great. Uh, you cannot just shove it as one little uh, you know, sub point in a bigger strategy going on. AI deserves its own space and deserves the best brains available. Uh, and military, I think military people should be definitely at the top because they are, they are very pragmatic, realistic kind of people. So once you have that, uh, you know, you need to look at what are the technologies because, you know, it, things like, for instance, material science, advanced materials. The, the, we are in a race with China. India should think of it like the U.S. has realized this 854-page report that you are referring to. Uh, Eric Schmidt from uh, Google quit his job many years ago to create this commission. 
because he's so concerned. And through this is the third president, they have all embraced it and keep adding more funding to it. That report is an amazing report. Everybody should read it in India. You need somebody. This is not the kind of report uh, Niti Ayo could produce. You need somebody really into this field in a big way. And if you look at the range of uh, you know uh, investments needed, uh, India has to then decide. Here is where we'll excel. Here is where we'll license. And here is where you know we'll just have to improvise somehow or other. But but the race is on material sciences the race it's not just software uh, computer science ai software there's a lot of hardware semiconductor and quantum computing are so important now i have a couple of friends who've just been hired by tifr and they're starting this quantum computing i'm very happy to do that uh, to that they're doing it but they also tell me that they're way behind they're just very small scale few people here and there the 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 the, the gravitas of ai has not been uh, uh, operationalized. Uh, there's a lot of uh, meetings and conference and all that, but there is no critical mass of people in one place that are sort of doing this 24-7. That is the first thing that India has to do, is to elevate the AI threat op and opportunity to the level of uh, ISRO. They have to put money into it, they have to put, uh, create something, preferably out of away from Delhi, some kind of uh, not controlled by the bureaucrats, something that can thrive on its own. That would be the first recommendation I would make. And China has that, USA has that, Britain has that, India should have it. Okay, we'll now turn to General TSA Narayanan, Commandant MCME, who has a question on data leveraging for revenue generation. General Narayanan, your question. Sir, you, okay, you have addressed the very pertinent point of uh, data capitalism and data colonization. Considering India's population, demography, and number of IT users, the data that can be provided for furthering any other purpose in any other country may be other than China. You also considered production of this data as a uh, data slavery or a data slavery and sort of a disadvantage. However, can it not be converted to our favor wherein the data is taxed by the government of India? Then technology will have to be developed to ensure the data pilferage. This will ensure not only regulation of indiscriminate pilferage of data, but also earn substantially revenue for the country. A request your view on this, sir. Yeah. So I'll I'll paraphrase the question and then answer it. So this idea that uh, right now data is sort of uh, you know open, everybody they do whatever they want. Uh, you know your data, your feed, every time you click on the internet. Uh, it enters the algorithm of uh, Facebook and Google and all these people as to what you like, what you dislike. These options were available to you on the screen. You pick this option. You did not pick that option. What does it tell about you? So they're constantly becoming smarter, not only about Indians collectively, but about a community, about a caste, about a region, about whatever, and the individual. So one of the big threats is that I, you know, Indians are using Gmail. Indians are using social media and Indian government people, military people, I am sure the profiles, the algorithmic profiles of all the important people in India sitting there. I'm absolutely sure the Chinese have it, the Americans have it. And this is why, this is what they sell to their corporate clients to make you buy something. If somebody wants to sell you shoes or holidays or whatever, they make, they make all their trillion dollars, whatever, these companies are very rich. They make it because they have proven empirically they can prove that they know the way your mind is working and how to change your mind and how to make you buy this or buy that. 
So the same data can also be used to convert your religion, to make you fight against the country, to make you a rebellious person, to go for a riot or whatever, it, it, because this is what, this is psychops. So think of AI as the future of psychops. The psychological warfare is here. That is all going on. But we are not controlling this data. That's the, what the gentleman's question is, a very important question. So how do we take this as our asset and, and t tell anybody who want to use this data, there is a meter, like you have an electric meter and all that, you have a data meter. Suppose we uh, develop the idea of a data meter so that the person who's using your data, firstly, he needs your permission, uh, what he can do with it. And secondly, he, there's a metered use. And if he's using a lot of your data, he owes you some money. If you consider data as intellectual property, then you know people who are using your data have to pay a license fee. But we don't classify data as uh, intellectual property. And one thing this reminds me of is in India, even software cannot be patented. This is a very surprising thing. Software cannot be patented in India. In other countries, it can be patented. How are we going to create a intellectual property based on all this stuff if we if we are not even encouraging our people to file for patents? India should amend this patent law. And uh, there is a there is a statement in my book. Somebody uh, verified it for me that I'm quoting correctly. I've written in my book the exact reference to the Indian code, software. Indian legal code of patents, and it says software is not patentable. Now, this is very strange. We should not only make software patentable, but also data patentable. And then, as the question said, we will probably be able to make revenue out of it and also control how this data of India is used. Okay, the commandant of the NCT, General Nair, he has a question on the challenges of developing or enabling AI ecosystems in our designated defense corridors, specifically. General Nair. Um, good evening, sir. Uh, it's been a very, very enlightening um, um, conversation so far, sir. I would like to just uh, comment on an issue of uh, data, sir. Uh, sir, India now has gone on a data protection policy, sir, where we are at looking at uh, how the data can be controlled or managed. Sir. Uh, I'm sure you are aware of the, the deliberations which are going on at this point of time. So my question is uh, specific to uh, some defense corridors which are coming up along the length and breadth of our country, where we are envisaging a lot of uh, technology-based uh, entrepreneurs to invest in these defense corridors. But considering the Indian ecosystem, which you had highlighted on uh, unskilled labor, the lack of R&D, et cetera, et cetera, sir, do you feel that this will be successful? And if not, if not so, sir, how do you envisage we make a success story out of this envisage defense corridors? You know, the thing is, you should take you should take a look at uh, uh, the U.S. has a very good model. If you look at DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, they do so much work with the private sector. Uh, they're not doing their they, most of the research they outsource here, there, but they're very sharp. They know exactly the whole map, what they want done, and they get it done from various places. And they look at the defense industry. The private defense industry is very, very massive and they're technologically way ahead. In, in the case of Boeing, for example, their defense industry is technologically ahead of their commercial plane industry. So uh, India needs to create that. It is, it is it, it, uh, you know, it, it, DRDO is great, but I think you need to also bring in a lot of the private sector and give them some incentive. I'm not very familiar with the details of these defense corridors, but I'm very glad to hear that this is happening. Uh, and, and I don't have enough information to give you a, a detailed comment. If someone would send me such a report or a plan, I'll be very happy to give you my views on it. Even private sector participation, Mr. Malhotra, 
is, I would say, increasing substantively. Very good. Our outreach to them and all is is greater than any time in the past. So that should be some good news for you. Any of yes. our commandants who wishes to raise any issue uh, or, or say anything, uh, please do come up. And even as you make up your mind, General Dhanwa, any view, suggestion, intervention, any question for Mr. Malhotra? Not so much for him, sir, but uh, could I ask you a question that uh, since you're heading our track, uh, are you looking at, uh, let's say, a conceptual paper on the uh, future needs of artificial intelligence for the Indian Army or something to that effect? Because uh, until and unless you don't really put out what is it that you expect out of the technology, uh, you can start projects uh, everywhere, but then you'd be all patching it up. Uh, so that's what I had actually felt that uh, when I wrote down that paper, uh, that we need to tell ourselves that in 2030, what is it that we uh, expect AI to be able to do for us? Even if it is a wild guess and 80% uh, uh, of it is wrong, but at least we'll get 20% right. Uh, that's that's just a thought I had. I thought I'd put it across to you. Absolutely. You see, we've not done something as grand as uh, Eric Smith's report on national uh, AI and national security. Nothing as grand as that, but we've taken some very specific steps. Last year, a whole study on disruptive technologies in AI. Actually, it was a study on AI because it was the umbrella term which, which, which looked at all this. Uh, it was presented to the chief. It was presented to the Raksha Mantri. Some sanctions were given. A roadmap was created, and we are moving along that roadmap. And that is what gives me the experience to tell you that the funds given to me exceed my capacities to spend at this moment. While there are people, there are startups, there are business people coming up, but because the lag is what it is, it just takes time to catch up. And that is the exact point that I've been making to you and Mr. Malhotra. So we have a very specific roadmap and much of it is out in the public domain. Then I myself flew to Pune, Bangalore, to these centers of software, hardware, and AI and all, we are in touch with people. Uh, the autonomous drones thing you saw on Army Day. Now we have, that's the takeoff. We are seeing how we should operationalize it in the northern borders, western borders, and elsewhere. We are looking at some more uh, larger projects, a tri-service AI-enabled cloud. We are looking at how to get cloud computing going. So a whole lot of stuff is in the air. They are those traditional TDF projects with DRDO. If you actually ask me, there are so many projects that I find dif difficult to attend to one project uh, within a fortnight. So much is happening, and I'm not saying that a uh, lot more should not happen. But uh, in my view, over the last two to three years, this issue has got a greater push. And for disruptive technologies or for technologies like AI, Money is not a constraint, at least uh, in the at the levels at which we are. If you look at tri-service clouds and all, they'll cost for huger investments, and you'll need bigger players to come in. These startups will not be able to do it. So in my view, and much of our track is doing it, they all know they have a specific project to take home from ramjet technology to you know image intensification. Um, there are about 20, 25 projects which we are roll, uh, rolling out, and it has also given us confidence. It has given us great confidence because Danua, you and I would know 
you recall a younger days, I mean, we were always told that you only fight. Technology is somebody else's business. Now we know it's our business. So a lot is happening in comparison with the Chinese. Of course, we have a long way to go. But uh, I hope that uh, satisfies you in some measure. Oh, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for those inputs, sir. All right. Any of the other commandants, if you would like to raise any issue with Mr. Malhotra? Sir, I am Vijay Sumit. Yeah. Entry school. Yeah. My question is, sir, social media uses artificial intelligence to influence sentiments and opinions. Also being used to shape emotions for specific agenda. With the introduction of data protection bill in India, how do such attempts by government across the world to access and control via online content? Sorry. So, so uh, that is their business: is to hack your brain psychologically while giving you a lot of uh, attractive freebies. You can do all kind of good things. Everybody's addicted. Get, get you addicted. And in the process, learn more about you and uh, navigate your thinking uh, in their way, the, the way they want. This is very dangerous because it's very subtle. Like the iceberg, little bit on the surface is visible, but lots going on underneath the surface that you don't know about. So this is happening uh, with private companies. I call them the return of the East India Company. That there are companies like that, and they are aligned with their governments. This uh, Google and all these people are definitely aligned with their governments. Uh, and China, of course, all these people are aligned with their governments. So, it, and the government themselves are also doing these things. So, one of the one of the questions, if I could ask a question, would have been, would be, you know, what is India's cybersecurity uh, countermeasures? But we will we'll defer that later. I'll, I'll answer the question that I've been asked. So, this being the this being a kind of a cyber, you know, warfare going on at a psychological level. Uh, we know the physical level, somebody can bring down your electric grid and all. That is very dangerous. But what Indians, uh, people in India, I, I'm trying to wake up this uh, awareness is that the mental, psychological, emotional hacking is far more dangerous because, in a, especially in a democracy, you know, you can do all kinds of things. In the US, they accused uh, Putin of uh, uh, hacking the elections in, the, in the 2016, and then they put all these countermeasures to prevent that. So foreign governments, are doing this to each other. I don't know if India is doing it to others, but India should be doing it to others. Uh, whether whether China is available as a soft enough target or not available is one thing, but India should be exerting this kind of technology over Nepal and over Pakistan and East Pakistan, uh, Bangladesh and Myanmar. India should be the hub for the region, influencing using social media and AI and algorithms in their language, you know, in Nepali language and Urdu and Bengali and all these languages, India should be having the project uh, to not only take control of our own social media so that the, the mind of the Indians is being controlled by algorithms from India that are made in India by Indians for Indians, not some foreign place. Not only we should control the algorithms for our own use, but we should be exporting this power over neighboring countries. In, that is how you become, you know, superpower in the region through the use of AI to uh, influence the young people and their thinking through whatever whatever the others are doing. We should also start doing that with our technology. That is what the big giant companies of India ought to be investing in. Uh, but I don't see that happening. I see that the. The, I call them Google, Google Devta, digital Devtas. We, we are thinking of them as Devtas, inviting them into our house and giving them a lot of prestige. 
uh, and I'm the person who stuck his neck out, taking the risk, and I'm taking a stand. It is not easy to do because so many people in India don't like me saying this because Google will call them or Facebook will call them and say, hey, no, 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 this guy is a bad fellow. Niti Aayog is full of uh, advisors like McKinsey and all these people who are bringing this whole point of view. So, you know, India has been invaded at many levels, you know, government level, uh, corporate level and public level by this whole uh, AI based algorithm driven new digital uh, thinking. And India needs to turn this around very quickly and become an exporter and aggressive company, country, doing this to other countries. Start with the small countries in the neighborhood. This is very important. Then go to Africa, then go to Southeast Asia and all that. India has the brains in uh, uh, raw material, has the, uh, you know, to put it all together. But what we need are visionaries who can create the projects, mentor the people, direct them to get all this done. So it's a very important question this gentleman asked. Okay, any more questions? That's Commandant OTA. Uh, a question each for Mr. Malhotra and General Dhanova, sir. Uh, Mr. Malhotra just possibly partly answered my question. Uh, we Indians are very fond of or very uh, swayed by a success story, sir. So if you really look for an artificial intelligence from Indian perspective, what could be that success story which will motivate, say, millions? particularly the young lot, and of course, obviously the military to go into this field in a big way as a carrier also. And the question to Jan Danova is that when you are looking at artificial intelligence, how seriously we can look at our intelligence core uh, to take on this, the overall perspective of the artificial intelligence as, 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 as part of their charter. Sir. Thank you. So, okay, what would be a good success story? I, I, there are several favorite things I have, but one example that will have popular appeal is uh, simultaneous language translation of all the Indian languages to each other. I think uh, now there are, there are language translators that Microsoft has and Apple has and so on, and they are trying to train them on Indian languages. Uh, which, rather than training their algorithm, making it smarter and smarter, which will be controlled by them, and we should have an Indian algorithm. We should have Indian people developing these algorithms, and then we should train those algorithms so you can go from any language to any language and teach it using natural language processing. That's the technology, that's the part of AI that is used for all this. Uh, so Americans have things like GPT-3, they have a lot of these Google brain, they're, they're doing a lot of work in uh, understanding the human thought, language, speech, what's the meaning, what is he trying to say, and so on. And, and there are many, many applications, one of the most easy ones to justify with a lot of uh, high profile uh, excitement is language translation. You could have it such that you're speaking in a language and the other guy is hearing it in his language, in a phone call uh, or in a court or, or, or in so many contexts. I think this would capture the imagination of the Indian people. It would unify India. Uh, you know, and instead of everybody having to move into English as sort of the link language, languages will be able to interact with directly with each other. This will be a phenomenal investment. The culture ministry do these kind of things. This is a good thing for HRD and culture ministry get together and do it. That would be my uh, uh, my kind of favorite topic because it has very good social impact. Yeah, Danwa. Uh, to answer Jan Das's question about. Uh, the intelligence core taking it on as uh, uh, you know the overall uh, direction for artificial intelligence. Uh, see, uh, the int core is uh, it's a general staff uh, branch to uh, 
should I say, to harness and to uh, leverage and exploit artificial intelligence. Uh, so it's not the only person or, or should I say the only branch of the military uh, which needs artificial intelligence. There are so many other places also where you need to apply it. So they are just one of the users. Uh, so they need to develop ways and means of how to enhance uh, the quality of intelligence that you get from uh, data sets that you would be collecting on the future battlefield. So that's one requirement that the uh, int uh, would definitely need to look at. But are they the only users or the exploiters of artificial intelligence? No, they are not. Uh, so uh, they are a subset within the overall requirement uh, uh, that the military, the general staff. So at the end of it, you are all there to uh, ensure national security and to make sure that if you are called upon to go to battle, uh, you must have the best wherewithal. So it's not purely the intercorp, uh, it's everybody else. So we all need to put our heads together uh, to say that, okay, if this is what currently uh, the narrow focus or the narrow artificial intelligence uh, gives us, uh, when we have broad-based AI, which is the future, when uh, there'll be computers will be able to think uh, and uh, do cognitive functions as humans uh, can, uh, what is it that we will we need to be able to get out of artificial intelligence? So to come back to your point, uh, the intelligence core is just a small subset within the larger picture that we need to look at the artificial intelligence. Uh, that's what I would have to say. Uh, I may be corrected by others who, uh, uh, you know, have a better understanding of AI, but that's how I look at it. Uh, maybe I'll request General Shukla to also uh, chip in on this. Yeah, before me, uh, General Bansiwal. Anything on AI in the intelligence domain? If General Bansiwal is here, Commandant of the In School, even as he comes up, he tell you just all the military domains which lend themselves to AI leveraging, shall I say, intelligence is the foremost. Through the good news is that we've overcome this bureaucratic hang up of not applying our imagery and data to be accessed for, uh, shall, shall we say, data cleansing and all that. So that process has begun. Three is what it will enable you to do in the strategic intelligence domain is, and that's the point that I referred to briefly, that it will not only allow you to uh, precisely decipher adversary capacity, but also intent. So a body of troops which say comes, shakes out, comes to a training area, comes to a training area again, can you from seven, eight of these maneuvers predict with some precision whether it will now come forward or go back in the future with this imagery being made available, that is very much a possibility. So, and such like things have been outlined in great detail in that Skimit report on intelligence. So do read it. And I also know from reading it that many of these things are happening in our own uh, intelligence domain. So these are the two, three things I wanted to add, what I know of what's happening with regard to AI in the intelligence domain. If Bansi is up, you won't wish to add something, you're the expert. So all that I can say is, sir, this is a field which is uh, so very important for all of us. And at the army level, we need to be looking uh, differently now. At, a, at army level, we need to think differently now. And accordingly, this organization needs to be revamped. And we need to come up with a structure wherein the intelligence requirements are met holistically. Sir. 
So we're going to look at all this, sir, while this uh, army commander has already talked about the imagery and all, as also the language part, sir. So there is a uh, there is a huge potential that we can develop, sir. But as I said, we'll have to look at it differently now at the army level, sir. As of now, we are structured at a very low level, sir, which possibly the environment is not aware. So we'll have to give it a de novo look, sir. Yeah, okay, okay, sir. Yeah, but many of these low-end applications also have great utility. And many of us know what's happening, even at the low-end AI and that kind of intelligence. There is a, a, a lot happening there, and that's also good news. Okay, let me now turn to the next issue. And this is, I think, the, the last or the penultimate one. And the question to you, Mr. Malhotra, is this, that you in your book, while discussing the follies of the Indian Rashtra, you point to the proclivity of India being far too reliant on soft power, even though soft power is always contingent on hard power as you have said. That's a very refreshing proposition to hear. You offer lessons from the Ramayana and Mahabharat to reinforce the salience of hard power. Lord Ram failing to convince Ravan despite all the soft power at his disposal. And similarly, Lord Krishna. Uh, Unable to win over Duryodhan with his soft power advocacies, resort to hard power. You draw the analogy of ancient Rome, proficient in hard power and Greece, skilled in soft power, with Rome emerge, ultimately emerging as the victor to make the point that in the Sino-Indian context, it is the metric of hard power that will determine as to who will prevail in the strategic competition. So will it be right to conclude, and I link this with the first question that I asked, that the Indo-Chinese strategic military competition, the two game changers will be AI and AI in hard power. Will that be uh, a right inference? And would you also agree if I say that of late, the, the proclivity of the Indian state to hard power, things are changing for the better. In recent times, we have seen a more central positioning of hard power in our statecraft there's also a willingness to set new normals in its deft use. Would you agree with the latter proposition and your response to the first uh, issue that I threw? Uh, very uh, uh, insightful uh, comment and uh, question, uh, I must say. Uh, both uh, points I agree with. Uh, the, the, you know, uh, I had this discussion with uh, uh, Amistri Party, good friend of mine. Now he's a, he's a diplomat in Nehru Center, and he's a, he's a soft power guy. And then there is a, uh, some soft power center in India, you know. And they think that uh, the way India is going to become great is we'll talk about some Upanishad somewhere. And I mean, I'm into all those studies, so I understand and I respect all that. That is for the inner. We have to develop that for ourselves. First, we have to develop it for ourselves and become ambassadors as uh, people who are actually practicing all this. Then people will understand. But what what people will respect is the hard power. Uh, in the 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 word power has to be uh, important in soft power. It cannot just be culture. If you have culture, I go and eat Thai food, but uh, I, that doesn't mean that if there is an issue, political issue, I'm going to vote in favor of Thailand because I like their food. It has nothing to do with it. So culture is one thing. To turn culture into soft power, it must have the ability to persuade other people to act in our favor because they have enjoyed and liked and benefited from this particular cultural aspect. So 
I don't know any U.S. congressman. Knowing U.S. is the one place I know extremely well. I don't know any U.S. congressman or senator whose decision to vote in favor of India and reject a bill that is against India will be premised on the fact that you know his wife is doing yoga, and so he'll say, "Oh, you know, because we are doing yoga, therefore there's soft power. I better not vote against them." I think they're separate things. So that that means that this business that yoga is soft power, we kind of fooling ourselves. Yoga is cultural export. Cultural export, it's fine. And you know, the Mao Zedong famously said, "Power flows through the barrel of a gun." I would say soft power flows through the barrel of a gun. I would really say that soft power flows through the barrel of a gun. Every time I say that, I get all these people saying, "You know, no, no, you know, like that. You're promoting all this violence and all." I'm not promoting violence. In fact, if you have good soft, uh, good hard power, you can prevent violence because people will be afraid of you. You you need to uh, go from strength. So I believe in chatyata. I believe in hard power. And the second part is AI is the very central decisive factor in this hard power race that is going on in the world. Be it the hard power of weapons, be it the hard power of uh, uh, you know technology based industry, or all of that. Now, is India doing this? India is going into hard power, uh, but it is not AI sufficient. It's not AI enabled. That it is hard power. That is good step. But India does not have enough AI culture and AI-enabled, uh, you know, institutions. Uh, uh, you know, there are a lot of important institutions in India that are still on the old way of doing things. Uh, India needs to bring AI into so many of its day-to-day uh, -day working. You know, uh, so I would say I partially agree that uh, India has done the right things, uh, but compared to before, a big step forward. Compared to where we need to be, still work need to be done. Right, I would. I agree with you entirely. We have a long way to go. Um, and just as a matter of interest to the wider audience, you, I would recommend another book to you by Elliot Cohen, "The Limits of Soft Power and the Utility of Hard Power." It makes a brilliant case of why hard power and uh, you know the many uses of hard power, the softer uses of hard power, the central punch of hard power. How it must be, it must have a, shall I say, a, a primary position in your statecraft. It's wise to do that. That's yes. another view. And I would commend that book to all those of you who have not read it. All right, the last issue, Mr. Malhotra, uh, from your very fascinating book is about psychological control and agency. And where you make this very persuasive case that deep learning in machines is resulting in shallow knowledge in humans, leading onwards to the phenomena of modernization and you'd lay the blame i think you already alluded to it at the door of google devta as you as you call google i would uh, offer a variant to this proposition and i would like it to be tested against your superior knowledge and insights and the question is embedded in that variation and it goes like this that way back in school it was the 70s really is when i grew up in india and education in India then was, of course, about facts and data, but it was also a great deal about your analytical abilities, your reasoning skills, and your communication capacities. The latter was visibly encouraged. So you read and participated in activities beyond the designated curriculum. You reflected, I would not say deeply, but you had time to reflect, and you were actually encouraged to explore. I remember one topped class by one's ability to excel in those one or two questions that came from beyond the syllabus. So syllabus wale to sabhi kar lete the. 
that forced you to read beyond, ponder and think. That was in education. You enjoyed going to school. Schools then encouraged an all-round demeanor. It was invariably the boy topping the class was also good in hockey. He was as good in football. That's my recall of my days in school. Uh, our chemistry teachers, I recall, were all as familiar with the wisdom of Shakespeare as also the prose of Munshi Premchand. And I distinctly recall those names. With the passage of time, and this is purely hunch and my personal observation, I presume by the 90s or so, quite synchronous with the introduction of the objective style of questioning in our examination system, with great emphasis on factual data and rote memory, the birth of mnemonics and all of that, we saw a gradual decline in our analytical abilities, the desire and ability to reflect, ponder, articulate, and originality and innovation, innovation in consequence were relegated to the background. So I would like to make the point that Google Devta is actually or should be a more welcome entity because it gives you basic facts and data, leaving you to free, leaving you free to reflect, analyze, ideate, and think. That's how I use Google, and I think it's a very useful tool because it it I don't commit many of those issues to memory, but I use this to make deeper points, and I'm sure many of us do this. So, and this is my proposition, it may be wrong, but the problem is not so much in the machines or tools, but what our education system has done. Uh, that seems to be the larger malaise, and therefore, how these tools are being used. How would you respond, sir, to this thought? And very good point. Like just all one, your other one, one follow up, sir. What should yes. we do specifically to our pedagogy in our military education training establishments? so that we continue to reflect, analyze, explore, and innovate, because that is central to our, you know, embrace and proficiencies in technologies. So that's the question we'd like to hear your answer. Great. So the, the role of uh, online data sources, uh, whether it is Wikipedia, whether it is Siri or Alexa or Google search, uh, the, the, there are two kinds of information. One is objective hard facts, and there you can't be wrong. You just look it up. Uh, if you want to look up, you know, uh, what is the population of this city or what was the share price of some company yesterday or what was the cricket match? It's not subjective. It's not a matter of opinion. It's not a question of interpretation. Uh, it's a it's a question of hard facts. And these these sources are wonderful and, and uh, uh, they relieve the human mind of the burden of uh, memorizing trivia because you can always look it up. My concern is that a lot of information is subjective. So I'll give you a concrete example. Take the word swastika. In the word swastika in our culture is a very auspicious sign. It is not about Nazis. It's not about fascism. It's not about some you know bad things, horrible things that Hitler did and all that. We have in all the four dharma traditions, the Hindu, Buddhist, Jain, and Sikh, a swastika is there. And it uh, is about wishing you well for your journey, for your, uh, you know, beginnings and so on. So the 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 role of swastik in European history, Western history is very different. So if you were if you train machine language, which is what they are doing, you train machine language using the texts of Western Western written texts, legal texts on swastika, historical texts on swastika. Philosoph philosoph philosophical texts, all kinds of stuff, you get a you get your machine algorithm trained that this swastika, the person who uses it is a very nefarious fellow. 
So now there is a subjectivity because swastika is a contested item. Now, when I was in the in around 1970, when I was in California as a software guy, uh, I remember uh, in the parking lot, uh, one uh, other Indian, he went and bought a new car. He took it to the local temple and the priest blessed this car, put the swastika on the front of the car, in the windshield and all that. He blessed it like people do, they bless something with swastika. It, it created a huge scandal. Uh, when he parked his car in the parking lot, I came back from lunch and uh, I saw a big group of crowd of our employees standing around the car and they were talking like, you know, we've hired a Nazi, we hired a fascist, what is this guy? We thought he's a nice guy. One of our fellow employees has got swastika. So I had to educate them on what is swastika for our culture. And they, I must say they were very broad-minded and we uh, did a, I did a, a, a slideshow on, uh, I had these Kodak 35 millimeter slides those days. So I used to talk a lot about our culture. I, I educated them that the, the swastika is very different. So this is an example of how words are, are interpreted. Caste is interpreted in the Western idiom and in all these algorithms in a way which is very different from what our Shastra and our texts say about caste. And uh, the, the the idea of uh, uh, Aryan invasion theory, if you, if you look up, uh, uh, you know, these algorithms are trained, uh, this Aryan invasion theory, Aryans came and they subdued the Davidians and whatnot. So the contested topics are so many, uh, especially when you're colonized and the English language writings about your culture have been written by Western Indologists people I'm always fighting with. And a lot of Indians have taken over that knowledge now and they are teaching all this stuff. So this the, this kind of, uh, you, you, if you are convinced that the, the, there was injustice done uh, in, the, in the ideology of the colonizers, and if you're convinced that after independence, a whole lot of uh, Indian people actually adopted that um, uh, old mindset, which is anti-India, I call it breaking India forces. Uh, if you're convinced of that, then my point is that artificial intelligence is going to empower those with the machine power. The reason it's going to empower those is the way the AI is being trained. It's not our people. It is not uh, uh, Shankaracharya of Shingeri who is controlling the training of AI with his Shastra and his, his lectures. It is not some uh, Indian, uh, India-friendly people who are in charge of training the, uh, the Google. Google is training its people. I mean, its machines based on the text. It decides are the correct text. So they go to they'll go to the standard mainstream ideas of India, which are full of prejudice and full of stereotypes, and that's how these machines are being trained. So my concern is that as the war for ideas and the battle for discourse becomes more automated with more and more AI, we're going to lose because we are not the ones controlling the training of uh, algorithms based on our ideology. That's where uh, I, I come from, saying that these uh, devatas are dangerous because we are relinquishing. It's like, you know, China is uh, training its algorithms uh, to, for a Chinese point of view. And uh, so far that they, uh, they are trying to subjugate the Muslim population in their own country and using it as a training ground. But they are going to unleash this in uh, Hong Kong. They're going to then start unleashing it in foreign countries where they have influence. Don't be surprised if in the border areas of India, uh, where the Chinese are trying to get in, that they'll have all these kind of... Uh, uh, you know, cyber warfare, psychological warfare also uh, as part of their arsenal to try and see if they can create unrest among those people. So I see the loss of authority from our adhikaris, our experts to uh, foreign people who made these algorithms 
as a national security issue. I see that as a problem. Uh, I, I think as a matter of principle, the, we, we should have had our own search engines. We should have had our own Wikipedia. We, we should have, we must have technology. I'm not against technology, I'm a technocrat, but we should control the, the, the spin that technology is given. And all these, uh, uh, there is no such thing as absolute truth, uh, objective truth, when it comes to ideas and philosophies and points of view, even India's border. Which algorithm, is it going to be our view of where is the border with China or with Pakistan? Is it going to be somebody else's? You know, this this goes on all the time that we, we, people are, protest, India has to protest that this map is wrong and that map is wrong. The point is, once it is AI, once it is all deeply embedded in algorithms, it, this problem of contesting the truth is going to become even worse. Well, thank you so much. Um, that's why I think a very good and a subtle point that you make. I just one um, question I have. Uh, why is it that even our best names in business, somebody like TCS or say Reliance, the ones with deep pockets, why is their R&D spend so low? I mean, I'm sure they are wise men. They, they, they see the futures. They see the value of investing in R&D today to capture market shares a few years hence. Yet, why doesn't it happen? I mean, you could have a quick response on that. Yeah, you know, not only is, first of all, the percent of GDP India spends on R&D R &D is tiny, it's less than 1% and it's gone down uh, compared to China, USA and so on. And then you consider the fact that our GDP is smaller than them. So you, the compounding effect, we, we have very light R&D going on. And the people who ought to be doing it, exactly the kind of people you mentioned, the top 10 major companies, business houses with all this money, they are, they, it's a disgrace, they are not done it. I don't know what to say, but I feel that it is this short-term thinking. You can make a lot of money. You take, uh, you do some service stuff. It is it, service economy. You can ramp up very quickly, uh, you know, and you can make a good story that we are creating this middle class because it's all labor intensive. Uh, R&D is not numbers. You're not going to create jobs in numbers right away uh, because the researchers are few. Instead of uh, so many lakh people outsourced, you'll have a, a few few thousand and they'll do the R&D. But the effect is such that once that technology is done, once that uh, you know you own the intellectual property, then you can turn it into very scalable stuff. You can have manufacturing based on your own technology, and then you can create industries, huge industries, and that will create millions of jobs. So it's a it's a short term. I think the trap is short term versus long term. We are stuck in this very short term, uh, short term trap. That may explain uh, why the 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 in the people who could afford are not, who have the deep pockets are not making the big bets. Even venture capitalists today, India is proud that now the venture capital in, industry is investing in all these technologies. But when you look at it, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's Silicon Valley investing type people. It used to be Chinese venture capitalists, but they stopped that. Uh, you know, Paytm, we're very proud of it, but 25% uh, of it owned by Alibaba, it, like, like that. Now the Americans are certainly there, Europeans are certainly there. The scale of uh, venture capital coming from Indian Indian pockets is much smaller, and that's a shame. Indian would rather buy some real estate, buy some jewelry, buy some something else. I don't know why the Indian doesn't have the Indian with money doesn't have confidence in India Indian brains and uh, you know invest their money in this technology. That is what bothers me, and I'm glad you asked this question. Why the private sector is so important? Because I was. Uh... I'm rather curious to note that the U.S. Space Force, 
as it is evolving into a space force is turning not to NASA, not to IBM, but to SpaceX. Yes. So Musk is willing to take those risks yes. and the US Space Force is engaging with him. And I think uh, this kind of connect, we are a long way off. Uh, yes. In, in you know, time. yes. Uh, uh, in this regard, I would say General Eisenhower talked about the military industrial complex, which is the backbone of America. I've added the word academics and I've said that now it is a military industrial academic complex in America. When I came to the US at the age 20, uh, as a as a technical person uh, doing my uh, wanting to do my PhD in physics, I switched to computer science and AI. My professors had all these uh, Pentagon contracts and I as a student, I also got in because they said that we need a student also. So I even though foreign student, I got uh, security clearance to go to Pentagon and work with these people. And I was very impressed that uh, the military taking uh, brains of the young smart brains from uh, you know major universities uh, through the professors finding these people and getting them involved in real practical applications, uh, giving a lot of grants to private industry. So the military industrial academic complex is a very powerful triangle in the US that is the backbone of innovation in America, whereas in India, these are separate silos. In China also, there is a military industrial academic complex. Uh, you go to the, most of the academic people are connected with the industry and they're connected with the military. The military has got their hands in all this stuff. The People's Liberation Army is there in all, all these uh, influencing all these people. So the both these countries, both these superpowers have this uh, triangular relationship that India needs to develop. I think that's a, um, another pertinent point because uh, you know, these false binaries in India of military versus civil, they have only accentuated these silos. Though, of yes. course, they're changing now. And I recall uh, this uh, east-west railroad system which was set up in the US. It was, of course, used to move the missiles around. But as a consequence, even commerce flew and uh, trade, uh, business and trade blossomed. So we've begun to make some changes now, maybe steps. Our three technical institutions here, we started a maker's lab where we are getting interns from private universities. We are reaching out. So that is beginning, but uh, I would say the baby steps is just begun. We still have some time and I've run out of questions and ideas. So if there are any questions from uh, anybody, uh, Mr. Malhotra is here. You won't get this opportunity again, so please shoot. Sir, Captain Bopanna here, sir. Promoting yeah, Bopanna. Sir, you have mentioned in your book that COVID-19 as a pandemic will have a worse impact on Indian economy and AI will have a pervasive influence on Indian economy. So yes, we did take a tumble, but however, the latest reports from the IMF suggest that India is touted to grow at about 12% in the year 2021. So do you agree that the foundations of the Indian economy are quite strong to not only cope up with the pandemic, but also to fight against the AI disruptions in the economy, sir. Thank you, sir. So that's a good point. Uh, India, India, hopefully, and I'm very glad to read this, that uh, the Indian economy will bounce back uh, uh, post-COVID. Uh, the same may not be true for AI, because, you know, the thing is this, uh, if you have too little AI, you will lag behind China in all these things that we've been talking about in terms of quality and uh, you know the technology and all that. At the same time, if you have too much AI, the wrong kind of AI, then you'll create unemployment. So that is an issue. 
so uh, ai uh, the the adoption of ai by industry is not necessarily optimizing nation building it's optimizing earnings earnings profits of the companies they are picking cherry picking what they need to do and uh, uh, there was there all the they're, they're funneled by the the, the 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 fueling the fuel that they on, of ideas is coming from the mckinsey's and price waterhouse cooper and ernst and young and world economic forum these are very big multinational corporate people they're looking at the economy top down so when they do reports on what india should do in ai and niti ayog adopts those reports also they 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 go to the mncs and they talk to the hr department and they, those guys say that yeah we are doing all this good stuff and it will not create any labor problems but they haven't gone to the migrant workers and figured out what is going to be the impact there they haven't gone to the villages in the panchayats which is where india lives they haven't gone to the various industries so to understand ai's impact on india there has to be a bottom up approach to see what what about the bottom 500 million 600 million people what's the impact on them when ai comes the top guys will become richer the rich will become richer it will be great for the economy in bangalore and mumbai and so on what happens to the hinterlands of india where the majority live that's my concern because we don't have ngos with enough ai savvy to represent them a political people are not sophisticated enough to think that way and represent their constituents to do ai just to do justice to ai there has to be a, a an impact assessment report by state every state chief minister should create a little ai body to see okay in my state given uh, whatever is our economy whatever is our industry agriculture what will be the impact what do we do about it bring local universities into it and so on every state should do a, a, a its own ai impact and similarly every industry the automobile industry should do it this uh, textile every industry is going to be impacted india hasn't done that defense is one of the few industries if you will where there is awareness within the within the rank and file from the top and i'm very impressed by that but i would like to see automobile industry people worrying about it i would like to see you know every industry should be worrying about it and thinking what is the impact and every state government should be doing it. labor unions should be looking at it so the the to bring ai into society at large you cannot just take a very top view and say that we will bounce back and everything will be fine you know when the industrial revolution came to england of course it created new opportunities and of course it created a big world economy but where in england they created jobs and a new economy but india became a colony because of the industrial revolution the industrial revolution became the vehicle for creating haves and have nots colonizer and colonized otherwise britain could not have become a great colonizer east india company could not have lasted so long had it not been for the industrial might the industrial revolution so the the when ai comes it's going to be like another industrial revolution it will also create new haves and have nots not only china and usa will become like england and france competing for colonies all over the world while fighting each other which is what was happening not only that but i would say even within countries even within india there'll be some pockets here some pockets there some will win some will lose so i think the ai outcome is more complex than a simple statement that we will do well all right so as eme school type that question could you do it no, no I, I i didn't see a type question oh okay here it is here it is it says i will read out uh, ai ai based models AI models based on general adversarial network 
have already surpassed Turing tests in various fields. Yes. Social media is bombarded with fake faces and videos. Yes. AI has created paintings for art galleries while exciting such applications of limited real world use case to, uh, cases for us. Yes. Similar is the case where with most advanced research models like bagging and random forest, etc. Yeah. It is turning out to be a case of development of models first and find use uh, use uh, cases later. How can we employ such advanced technology like this uh, gener gener generational adversarial networks and random forests for problem statements in Indian uh, in Indian Army? Okay, so what you have to do is not start with the technology and then figure out where does this apply. I think you have to look at the other way around and say this is an army issue. This this is this is an area. What do we do about it? Where are the technologies and get whatever technology would suit? So I think you have to look at the the problem to be solved and find the technology rather than start with the technology. This this always happens at both ends. There are technical, there are fundamental research people, and they produce a technology and they are looking around. And I, I get I, I, so many of these technocrats come to me and want advice where to go. Some people from Silicon Valley. I'm on the phone a lot. So I'm giving them advice, introducing them to some people. They go around and they find out where where the applications are. And then you have the other other way around. You have people who are who got a situation and they want to solve that situation. And then they go. They're looking for where are the technologies. Army has to do a bit of both because you know Indian Army should invest in fundamental research because you know those kind of things are very necessary. And at the same time, you need people who are the client side not the production of not the producer of technology the client side who have to develop very robust requirement specifications of what is the system we need uh, what is the you know kind of uh, ai system we need and then go look which kind of uh, ai technology will work you need that uh, uh, the producer of r and d and the the people who will apply it and utilize it uh, in a healthy kind of uh, back and forth that that's how you have to do Okay, I think now we've run out of time. So no, no further questions. I would just like to add something to what Mr. Malhotra just mentioned. Uh, thus far, we were investing in research through DRDO. That was the principal vehicle of our research. But we widened it now. We set up our own research and innovation centers where we are looking at our own research to supplement DRDO and to widen the ambit to private sector startups and so on. We've set up an AI lab, a quantum lab. We are setting up testing facilities, moving to self-certification. So this is another thing that's happening, and that might help this whole uh, this push uh, towards technology. Uh, that said, I think uh, I'm afraid we've run out of time completely. So we'll have to bring this exciting conversation to an end. Thank you so much, all of you, for your very enthusiastic participation. You know, many of your questions, Mr. Malhotra, described them as brilliant. So if he was not being polite, it makes me very proud. Um, uh, now what you must do is follow up, follow up more effectively on all these small sprawl programs that we have got going to make the country proud. That is what we must do. Use this conversation on AI, convert it into an executable AI plan. And let us resolve to make AI and all the other attributes that Mr. Malota refers to in his book as also through this conversation, the Indian tradition of Purva Paksh, thinking long and deep, and the Kshatriya, the value of originality, so on and so forth, a part and parcel of our personal lives and our institutional existence.
only then will this this i would say very deep conversation be of practical value may i suggest that all of you draw out modest little roadmaps for ai in your respective domains and look at the development of appropriate skill sets in accord with resolute implementation in so far as the larger issues of strategic import are concerned we shall address them at appropriate higher levels only then will we be able to address the very formidable security challenges that lie in india's national security path so mr malhotra thank you once again for the wonderful book and this very insightful conversation we look forward expectantly to the sequel to your book and the next time you visit india in better times do find to visit us we shall be honored to play host and carry the conversation forward uh thank you i should thank also you. say thank you just one minute to general yeah. danwa and we have a similar invitation for you virinda so thank you so much and jay thank you and mr malhotra thank you thank you thank i you. just want to make a clo closing remark saying that uh, i really appreciate uh, this whole event uh, i wish i were there in person uh, and maybe and i visit india three four times a year except for this covid next time i'm there I'll, i will definitely do something in person i would love to have more interaction and my final statement is that all those who are attending if you want to be on my list because we are doing this on a rapid basis we are having many many exciting conversations debates discussions on ai particularly and we're going to continue this uh, for the entire 2021 if you want to be informed just go to www.aiandpower.com aiandpower.com and there's a place you can register you put your name and email id and we'll be very happy to keep you informed of all our activities thank you very much all of you and uh, god bless thank you thank you sir thank you